Welcome to Wisdom and the Word Podcast, the show that not only answers your questions from God's Word, but equips believers with the foundational truths for their faith. We're excited that you've taken time to join us and hope that today's content is valuable to you. In today's episode, Pastor Wiley answers a listener's question from the Bible. Welcome to Thoughtful Thursday on this edition of Wisdom in the Word. We're so glad that you are here today and taking time to be able to spend some time studying the Bible with us. We are, as usual on Thursday, answering our listeners' questions. And uh, this question uh, comes to us, it's a rather lengthy question, and it's multifaceted. And uh, we're going to try and do our best to unpack it uh, as we work through it together. Uh, Here's our first question and our only question we're going to be dealing with today. Uh, We as believers always say everything is from God. Well, what about times of turmoil, hardship, and trials? For instance, Job. Uh, God allowed Satan to do whatever he wanted to do to Job, short of ending his life. So would it be fair to say that Satan is the one that orchestrated all the loss, turmoil, and destruction in Job's life? If we say and believe everything is from God, would we have to say God did those things to Job? I understand that God allows things to happen to us, to stretch us, mature us, and to test our faith. But at what point would it be Satan taking over and causing us the grief? We even say things like Satan is the one bringing up your past, failures, and mistakes. I think of the song, It's Under the Blood, and how the first verse is in reference to Satan bringing up your past sins, and he's referred to as the old accuser. I wonder if we've lost the view that Satan is the prince in the power of the power of the air, Ephesians 2. Sometimes I believe Christians forget about the warning Peter gives in 1 Peter 5.8 about the devil. For that matter, Paul even tells us who we battle against, Ephesians 6.12. I believe that's why many believers have a hard time when things happen, because they aren't heeding the warning Peter gives us about being vigilant. So back to my question. Would, would it be correct in saying God allows Satan to attack a believer's life, like in the instance of Job, which during that time Satan is in control? As we watch Satan's work throughout the world today, after all, isn't Satan on the lookout to conquer, destroy, and kill, not wanting anyone to come to salvation, but also to create chaos in a believer's life to get them to turn away from God? As, as many do when heartache and turmoil comes into their lives, they walk away. Yet you have said on more than one occasion, if you think your life is so sufficient that Satan is targeting you, then you think too highly of yourself or something to that effect. You also mentioned Satan cannot be everywhere like God, which I understand, but Satan doesn't work alone. What about other fallen angels? Satan has to have some power. Yes, I believe that he's not allowed to attack us without God's permission. I have to believe the warnings we receive from the word of God to be vigilant about him. Is the, the, Those are there for us to take heed. He's out there. I'm not sure why I'm questioning this. I think Satan or his followers uh, do try to hinder our work with the Lord. And to say he isn't that interested in my walk is like saying you don't need to worry about Satan. Yet we're warned to take, warned into in God's word. Isn't that part of spiritual warfare? Isn't he the one that causes chaos in our lives? Well, this is a very deep thought out question. I appreciate um, the our listener that has submitted this. I think it's important for us to unpack some of these thoughts. Um, these are these are some good thoughts. Let's I think let's deal first off with the matter of Satan and Satan's uh, work in our lives. Um, we do understand that the Bible teaches that Satan is the prince and power of the air. Now, when we say that, 
Uh, when he talked about him being the God of this world, we're not saying that he has rulership and authority of that is inherently his and that he rules this world like God rules the universe. What we're saying is that while God is on the throne of the universe, the things that are happening in this world that are being manipulated by the sinful world in which we live are being manipulated under the direction of Satan, that the devil hates God and he has created this world system. This is the reason why the Bible tells us to love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. Uh, the world system is a system that opposes God. It's not just the world in which we live. When the Bible talks about him being the God of this world, it's really the God of the time in which we live, the, the God of chaos, the God of fallenness, the God, God of, of sin and mischief, and the God that, that wants people to be blinded uh, in, in that sense that he is he's creating a world where he's comfortable ruling. He's creating a world in which he is comfortable to be able to rule over. And certainly with that in mind, the Bible gives us some very specific instructions on uh, be sober, be vigilant. First Peter 5, 8. Uh, the Bible tells us neither give place to the devil. Uh, the Bible tells us resist the devil and he will flee from you. And the scriptures are very clear about the matter of the devil's work. The Bible says in Ephesians 6, as we put on the armor of God, that we might quench the fiery darts of the wicked and, and we might stand against the wiles of the devil. So there are multiple passages of scripture and we, we don't deny those. We don't deny that there's spiritual warfare and that as you're battling this world system, you are battling the forces of Satan. You're battling, you're battling the devil. You're involved in spiritual warfare. All of it is, is connected. Uh, your flesh is drawn. The inner enemy is drawn to the world system, which the devil is manipulating. And so, yes, we are all, all involved in spiritual warfare. And yes, the devil wants to accuse and he wants to defeat uh, and he wants to keep us uh, living in doubt. The devil wants to cast doubt. You go back to the Garden of Eden, you see some of his tactics from the very beginning. And so there are so many things that that we we see in the scriptures concerning the devil, about his organization and uh, the the fighting that took takes place in Daniel 6 between uh, the prince of Persia and, and Michael the archangel and uh, the angel that's dispatched to Daniel with an answer to his prayer. And all of these things that are going on, we, we recognize we are involved in spiritual warfare. But we also, in the midst of that, must acknowledge a couple of things. The majority of the problem that we have in our lives are a result of our own flesh, our flesh that we do not control, our flesh which is drawn to this world system, our flesh that ends up serving the devil's purposes because we do not bring it under control. So as fleshly creatures, we are, we are drawn, our old nature, uh, we're naturally as sinners drawn to these types of things. So that's our problem. Our main problem is ourselves. Now, we talk about the devil and the devil's work. We know that the devil has a, a particular work. We know that uh, he what he wants to do. And the Bible presents him as a liar, as a destroyer, as a devourer of the lives of people of faith, that he wants to devour their lives. And we've got to live cautiously. Why? He's creating a world system that appeals to our flesh, and we must be careful not to succumb to it. But dealing with the devil individually, 
Um, that's pretty much how we deal with the devil individually. The devil is working. He has hosts of devils and hosts, hosts of, of fallen angels that are at his disposal that are working. Um, we read in Revelation 12 um, about Satan being cast out of heaven, taking one third of the stars. Many believe that that's a reference to the fact that um, Satan has taken um, a large portion of the angelic host with him uh, in disobedience. And they are at work. No doubt they are at work. Um, when you look at the devil's role in all of this, um, we say, I say, when we talk about the devil disturbing you, uh, the devil is one creature. He is not omnipresent. Uh, he cannot be everywhere. He can only be in one place at one time. He's highly organized. We don't doubt that there are devils that are at work in this world, and we must be aware of the work of the devil through his devils in the world system. We, we must be constantly aware of all of that. We must also be conscious of the fact that when you look at a situation like Job, that the devil goes to and fro. And the Bible says he's in first Peter that he's seeking whom he may devour. He's looking for his next victim. He's always looking for an opportunity, but the devil's focus in that passage in that book became the person Job. But remember that it was not the devil that recommended Job and said, I want him. It was God that recommended Job for his trial, which is even more difficult in regards to our listeners question today. Because it really wasn't, you know, the devil asking permission to be able to touch Job. It was God recommending Job for the trial and then giving the devil permission as he sought further opportunity to be able to create problem in Job's life so that Job would turn away from God and turn away from his faith. So I would say that, yes, we are definitely involved in spiritual warfare. Our flesh is the greatest, the greatest adversary. Um, but to think of that the devil, the one creature, the devil, is focused on you or I is a little arrogant in the sense to think that uh, we would be the ones recommended by God for the devil to target. We have difficulty with our own flesh, overcoming our own flesh. We have difficulty dealing with the world system in which we live, let alone facing the devil himself. Having said all that, this does bring us to a, a difficult question, and that is the question of suffering, the question of evil, and what God does, and why God does it. This is one of the most difficult questions uh, for believers to be able to answer. Uh, in fact, this particular question has brought a great deal of perplexing thought to the greatest minds that have ever walked the face of the earth. It has caused some to abandon their faith and others to be strengthened in it. Books and volumes have been written on the matter of suffering and the beginning of evil and the devil and where all this came from and, and how God, and this is these musings that we're reading in, in our listener uh, question today are the musings of many great minds that have come together to try and satisfactorily answer these questions, some better than others, some more satisfying than others. Sometimes the answers aren't satisfying at all. I would say that in all of this, there is a measure of faith that must be used. There's a measure of belief and trust in God that must be used. 
But I think to answer this question kind of fully about the matter of suffering, and I, I've done some extensive uh, research on this and and talking about the devil, I hope I've, I've understood or kind of clarified uh, the devil's work in the world and the struggle that we have in spiritual warfare and why the Bible warns us and that we should be uh, vigilant to look out for the devil's work. But I want to talk a little bit about the philosophy of suffering and understanding a little bit about that. And I, when I say suffering, all of us suffer. Uh, some people suffer in greater degrees than others. Um, some people struggle with this. Uh, why did God allow this and why God allowed this and why these things continue if God is a good God? And these are all questions that I think the Bible is capable of answering and a biblical philosophy is capable of, of arriving at a satisfactory conclusion. But they are difficult questions. Let's begin with a little bit of philosophy about the fall, because it's important for us to understand that the biblical doctrine of the fall gives us the answer to why evil exists in the world. This is the very foundation. Again, we got to kind of start and build this a little bit uh, today. Uh, God did not desire or will sin to exist. That was not God's will, but he did give man a free will with which to worship him. And the only way that man, that God could have a creature that would worship him freely was if he was free to do so. And so he gave the angels freedom to choose. He also gave uh, man freedom to choose. And he put man in the optimal place for survival, the optimal place for victory, for uh, being able to uh, do what's best. And even in that position, man still chose in his free will uh, chose himself and chose his own sin and chose uh, his wife over choosing God and what God has said. Now, evil and sin exist in this world because man rejected God and incurred God's punishment. So let's kind of summarize here and think about this Bible doctrine of the fall, which helps us give it the foundation to springboard into thinking about other things. First off, it should be clear uh, from the very beginning and this is a very important part, that there are no innocent people. We use that term oftentimes, the innocent, the innocent, the innocent. Uh, we use that term a lot. But no one is sinless, and no one is free from guilt before a holy God. So we start with that. That is maybe revolutionary in thought or should be to you to think that there are no innocent people. I'm not saying that there aren't good people. I'm not saying there aren't kind people in the world. But truthfully, in regards to sin and violating and trespassing against God, there is there is no innocent people. Even children in this sense are not innocent because we all sin. We sin against God. And because of the fall, sin has been charged to all humankind. It is Romans 5, verses 12 to 21, teach, uh, teach us very clearly that, that uh, whereas by sin, uh, by, by death, by, by, uh, that by death, sin entered the world and death by sin. So death has passed upon all men for that all have sinned. So the scriptures are clear about the passing on of the, the sin nature that has been charged to all mankind in Adam and Eve as a result of their poor choices. Now, secondly, let's think about this. Adam had a free choice to obey or disobey God. He was given that freedom in the very beginning. He knew the consequences of disobedience. 
although evil already existed in the person of Satan, okay, Satan had already fallen, he had already chosen, he rebelled against God. Although evil already existed in the person of Satan, it was Adam's free choice that allowed sin to affect mankind. Sin didn't have to affect mankind, it affected mankind in Adam's sin. When there's freedom to choose between good and evil, there's always the possibility that evil will be chosen. And Adam chose sin because God made him that, made him with the ability to be able to choose. He made him with the ability to choose for worship's sake, but he chose that way because of his own sin, because of his own desire. So with this choice came punishment. God punished the the woman. God punished the, the serpent. God punished the man. God punished the earth. Everything was affected and contaminated by Adam's sin. And so we have punishment and human suffering as a result of it. Now, thirdly, the evil we see in nature whether it be earthquakes, hurricanes that sometimes kill people, um, you know, tsunamis, um, volcanic activity, all of that is a result of human sin. Nature in and of itself is not evil, but the land was cursed because of man's sin. And violent physical manifestations of nature are a result of the fall. These things that happen cataclysmically, that happen in this world, they happen as a result of the curse that was placed upon this world. Fourthly, evil is not discretionary. That is, it doesn't choose its victims. It doesn't choose. All right. So God is not the author of evil. Evil and wickedness and problems exist because of man's sin. And this world is on a, on a collision course with itself because of the curse that's been placed upon it. So evil isn't discretionary. That is, it doesn't choose its victims. Evil's like a bomb thrown into a crowded room to assassinate a political leader, okay? A lot of innocent victims are inadvertently hurt. Evil is an irrational thing resulting from the fall. So can, let's build this thought in our mind. Evil, evil happens because we live in a world that's fallen. We live in a world with these cataclysmic things. We live in a world with other sinners who do wicked things to other people. So this is the premise upon which we understand why things happen the way they do. And it's foundational to being able to understand the role that God plays in all this. Next, let's move on into our philosophy of goodness. Because I think this is also important. And again, I, I'm not going to be able to exhaust this today, but I'm going to give you some thoughts that may be able to help you. First, let's be clear that goodness means more than kindness. When we talk about goodness, you know, kindness is, is the will to free the loved one from pain. Okay, if you see a, um, a, a dog caught in a bear trap, and you free him from that pain, you are liberating him. That's kindness. But sometimes to be good is not to be kind. See, so what do you mean? Well, think about the dentist. If you go to the dentist in order to get your teeth examined, and you have a cavity, and he has to drill, and he tells you you need a root canal, that's not going to be kind. He's not going to be kind to you, but he is being good. A surgeon may have to cut you open 
and cut out something that's infected or affected or help you by removing something that is causing your body pain internally. He's not being kind, but he's being good. An athletic trainer might push your body to the point of pain as your muscles tear and they they grow, they it exhibits pain. He might push your body to a point where you might not think that he's good, but really he's not being kind, he's being good. Teachers and parents, sometimes a, a teacher might have to uh, give you homework and you might say, well, that's not uh, being kind. It may not be kind, but it's good for you. So you understand what I'm saying, that kindness Sometimes to be good is not to be kind. Understand, if goodness meant only kindness, a God who tolerated pain in his creatures when he could abolish it wouldn't be an all-good God. We question the goodness of God. Really and truthfully, God is always good even if he is not always kind. Does that make sense? You know, a Christ who healed only a few thousand people in a world where millions were hurting would not be all good either. Why did Jesus only choose to heal just a few, a few thousand people? Or uh, how did he only help those so many when, when, the, when he could have healed more? The more deeply we love, the more we go beyond mere kindness. We are merely kind to a stranger's children, but we are more demanding of our own. We're kind to animals. We kill them to prevent pain. Hence, most advocates of euthanasia believe humans to be merely clever, evolved animals. But we have higher hopes for humans. We hope not just for freedom from pain, but also freedom from vice, freedom from ignorance and sin. God allows suffering and deprives us of the lesser good of pleasure in order to help us toward the greater good of moral and spiritual education. You say, well, God's not being kind. Sometimes he's, he's not being fair and he's not being kind to me because he allows these kinds of things to happen in my life. But the greater good of moral and spiritual education, your growth, you becoming what he wants you to be is of greater value to him than the temporary pain that you're going through. And so while we would say that sometimes God is not kind, we would say he is always good. Even the pagans knew that the gods that they served, teach them wisdom through suffering. God let Job suffer, not because he lacked love, but precisely out of his love to bring Job to the point of the vision of God face to face in Job 42.5, which is humanity's supreme happiness, okay? To know God, to see God. Job's suffering hollowed out a big space in him so that a big piece of God and joy could fulfill it. Job's experience is uh, paradigmatic for all saintly suffering. It's a paradigm through which we look. God may allow certain things into our lives to hollow us, and while he may give Satan permission, God can take the evil that Satan perpetrates upon us, and he can turn it around for our good, and ultimately it may not be kind, but it is good in the end. The result of it is good. He allows only the evil that can work for a greater good for us. 
Not all that we do is good, but all that God does is good. Everything that God does, including not miraculously interfering to deliver us from all evil. Even when God doesn't, it's good. Even when God says no, it's good. Even when God says this is okay for you to go through, it's still good. And that's hard for us to accept. That would be like parents doing all their children's homework problems for them. God doesn't interfere in that fa in fashion. He wants what's best for you. And so he is good while he's not always kind. Thirdly, I think it's important for us to define happiness. To define happiness. The term happiness, when we think about happiness, the ambiguity is between the shallow, popular meaning and the deeper, more philosophical meaning. We don't really understand what it means to be happy. The shallow meaning of happiness creates the problem of evil, and the deeper meaning solves it. So let me explain. The shallow meaning of happiness, which is our modern meaning, is first, off, uh, first of all subjective. Happiness in this sense is a feeling. If you feel happy, you are happy. Second, this happiness is only a present temporary phenomenon. Feelings come and go, and so does the feeling of happiness. So first off, happiness is a sense of feeling, and secondly, it's only temporary. Third, this happiness is largely a matter of hap. The first part of happiness is hap, that is, it's chance or fortune. You might be lucky. It's good luck to be happy. It's not under our control. It's something that happens to us. Finally, its source is external. It consists in things like winning the lottery or the Super Bowl or bodily pleasures or prestige or health. Those things make us happy. We're happy when our team wins. We're happy when it's sunny outside. We're happy when we can experience pleasure in our body. We're happy when we're healthy. It's money, sex, power, never poverty, chastity, and obedience. Those things aren't listed on the list of temporal happiness, this surface happiness. But understand, that's not the older, deeper meaning of the concept of happiness. The older, deeper meaning of happiness is evident in the Greek word eudaimonia. This is, first of all, an objective state not just a subjective feeling. It's an objective state. It's not true that if only you feel happy, you're happy. A grown man sitting in the bathtub all day playing with his rubber ducky may be content, but he's not happy. A Nero gloating over the Christians he killed may be pleased, but he's not happy. Happiness is to the soul what health is to the body. You can feel healthy, you can feel healthy without being healthy, and you can feel happy without truly being happy. You can also be happy without feeling happy, as Job was, learning wisdom through suffering. When Jesus said, blessed are they that mourn, that assumes a distinction. In the second place, true happiness is a permanent state. It's permanent. Again, a matter of a lifetime, not a fleeting moment. True happiness. 
it's also under our control. Not like the, the happiness that we have in this world, which is fleeting. True happiness is under our control, our choice. Its main cause are wisdom and virtue, both of which are good habits we create in ourselves, in our, in ourselves by practice, not gifts of fortune that are passively received. Finally, happiness's source is internal, not external. It's a good soul, not a good bank account that makes you happy. Divine providence arranges our lives in light of true happiness as our end because God is good and loving. This doesn't necessarily include happiness in the shallow sense. In fact, to be truly happy, we need to be deprived of much happiness in the shallow sense. That is, in order to get to the deeper meaning of happiness, we might have to not experience some of the temporal happiness, the shallow happiness that we truly want. Some of you know what I'm talking about. You have come to a place of being happy in your life, but it has come through some difficult losses where you realize that those things were not the definition or what real happiness really was. For true happiness, true happiness requires wisdom and wisdom requires suffering. As, Rab as Rabbi Abraham Heschel said so simply, the man who has not suffered, what can he possibly know anyway? Right? What do we learn? The volumes of things we learn through suffering. One of the things we learn is how to be truly happy. Deep happiness is in the spirit, not the body or even the feelings. It's like an anchor that holds fast and calm on the bottom, even while storms rage on the surface. It's that peace, that inner tranquility. God allows physical and emotional storms to strengthen the anchor's hold, fires to test and harden our metal, but the anchor holds. Our souls must become bright, hard, hard sharp swords. That's our destiny and his design. We are not toys, we are swords. And that requires tempering in the fire. You and I are to be used by God, and that requires tempering. Sometimes requires that it, it's beat upon in order to make it into what it's supposed to be. The sword of the self is designed to sing in the sun eternally, like the seraphim. If we could catch even a glimpse of this heavenly destiny, if we understood why we are designed to judge angels, we would not see a problem in the sufferings of Job. Teresa of Avila said the most miserable earthly life seen from the perspective of heaven looks like one night in an inconvenient hotel. We need to understand what real, genuine happiness is. It's not that shallow happenstance. It's that deeper happiness that comes through the, the wisdom and maturation that comes through the sufferings and hardships in our life. And then lastly today, let me talk a little bit about how Jesus answers this question. You know, we sympathize with people who suffer from people who have had difficult circumstances and who have gone through things. Our thoughts and prayers go out to people who are, are concerned and people who are hurting. How, how can people who've gone through hardships ever fully recover from bereavement and pain? How can they recover from a bo the bomb or the bullet that they feel like they've taken in their lives? Why does God allow these things to happen? Well, the same question was asked of the Lord Jesus Christ. Luke records the incident of the Galileans whose blood Pilate mixed with their sacrifices and the 18 who met a violent death when the Tower of Siloam fell on them. 
in Luke 13, this particular answer is given. I want to kind of look at this verse and then close, or these verses and then close here today. Luke 13, beginning in verse number one of this text, Jesus said there were present at that season some that told him of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. That is, there were some that were there that had suffered. And Jesus answering said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, nay. But except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Or those eighteen upon whom the tower in Siloam fell and slew them, think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwell in Jerusalem? I tell you, nay. But except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. You know what Jesus is saying here? Jesus is saying that these tragedies, these things that happened to these Galileans was not a direct result of their sin. It wasn't God visiting some sort of judgment upon them. It wasn't God getting back at them. No, he was saying that it was a result of sin in general. The fact that we live in a fallen world. Every bad thing that happens to us reminds us that we live in a fallen world and we need a savior. And that's what Jesus is telling them. He said, you need to repent. Unless you repent, you're going to perish in the same way. It may not happen today and it may not happen tomorrow and you may not have an accident, but eventually sin kills us all. And we need to make sure that we are right with God. Jesus dealt with this problem by pointing out that this tragedy wasn't the direct result of something that they had done. He said, do you think that they were greater sinners than other people because they suffered these things? Jesus says, no, we live in a fallen world. We've lost paradise. We suffer the consequences of people turning away from God. If people refuse to acknowledge God and gratify their own lust at the expense of other people, is God to be blamed? The Bible teaches the responsibility of people for their actions. And the same goes for wars and rumors of wars. As Cordell Hull commented, war is not an act of God, but a crime of man. So understanding and accepting our role and our responsibility is crucial in the matter of understanding. And then seeing God and understanding God, knowing what happiness really is, knowing what goodness really is, understanding the fall, all these things make sense. Does it does it fix every problem? Does it answer every question? No. No, it doesn't. And as I said in the very beginning, some of these things need to be accepted by faith. But we trust in the goodness of God. We trust in the love of God. And certainly while this world is being manipulated and set on its end, and the devil is going as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, the truth of the matter is we live in a world that's full of suffering. And we're going to until Jesus comes, but let's learn through that suffering. Let's grow through that suffering. Let's become what God intends for us to be. Let's strive for true happiness. Let's redefine and understand what real genuine goodness of God is like. Let's philosophically understand why things are happening the way they are and where things are headed. And ultimately, let's understand that the most important thing is our relationship with Christ and what we're going to do with our sin and how we deal with what Christ has done for us at Calvary. 
Well, I hope that this has been a help to you today. There's certainly so much more that we can unpack here. And I've tried to pick out and choose some things that I might, I think might be of help to you. We hope you'll join us on our next broadcast on Tuesday as we continue on in our study of the book of Hebrews. We hope that you'll join us for that particular study as we continue on uh, studying. And then next week, we'll be answering some more questions for you that our listeners have brought in. Our next questions deal with some something out of the book of Revelation about the 140. 44,000 about the city of Babylon. Uh, we're also going to talk about um, tithing and retirement, social security. So there's a lot of great things here. We're going to talk about divorce, uh, remarriage, a pastor being remarried after his spouse dies. Man, there's a lot of great stuff on the horizon. We hope that you join us the next time on our next broadcast. Thank you for joining us today on this broadcast of Wisdom in the Word. God bless you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Wisdom in the Word podcast. If you've enjoyed today's episode, we invite you to support us by subscribing, rating, and reviewing this show on your favorite podcast app and sharing something you've learned on social media. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope to see you next time on Wisdom in the Word.